The following sermon is from Dr. Dan Kitanoia, pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Tilton, Illinois. If you've never reached out to Calvary before, we'd like to hear from you. Visit our website at myhomecalvary.org. That's myhomecalvary.org. And now, here's Dr. Dan. James chapter 1. So, through faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, we are redeemed and set free from slavery to sin, and we are reconciled to the God that we have offended by those our sins, so that we might glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. This life that we live with God is joyful, but at times is also difficult. So James is led by the Holy Spirit to write this letter to Christians giving us guidance for how to live well with God in the midst of a world that is full with trials and temptations. We began our time in this short series in James by addressing the hard questions that people often ask when they endure hardships, like, why God and what do I do now? And then we kind of saw that in chapter 1, verse 9 through 12, James gave us a very radically different perspective on our problems, and we saw that he told all Christians, whether rich or poor, to celebrate the fact that they are united with Christ, even though that union with him sometimes brings suffering. One way that we suffer as Christians comes as a result of the turmoil, get this, caused by our own sin. God calls us to be holy like him, and we want to be holy and righteous. This is because the Holy Spirit in us leads us to be righteous and holy. Or as my old friend Paul used to say, I used to want to sin, but then the Holy Spirit changed my want-tos. This is what happens to us. So here's the question. If God commands us to be righteous and holy, and the Holy Spirit who dwells in us leads us to obey God, why is it so difficult to be holy and so easy to sin? Why is it so difficult to be holy and so easy to sin? Why is it that something good, like the blessing of wealth, can cause us to sin? Last week we saw that James addressed the tendency of wealthy people to sin. He warned us that even the wealthy will be judged by God, even if it seems like they're getting away with crime while on the earth. You and I may not be wealthy like, say, Tiger Woods, but Compared to the people who originally read James's letter, we are wealthy. Most of us have several sets of clothes. <clears throat> Most of us slept in a climate-controlled room with uh, running water, and we took a fancy motorized car to church this morning. You may not be rich compared to someone else, but you are rich compared to many. Now, having wealth is not a sin, and being poor does not prove that you are pure. Because the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and you don't have to have a lot of money to love money enough to do something sinful to get more of it. I'm going to say that again. You don't have to have a lot of money to love money enough to do something sinful to get more of it. And having a good supply of wealth does not guarantee that you won't covet your neighbor's truck or boat or house. And while it is true that the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, money isn't evil in and of itself. And it isn't the problem. And money isn't the only good thing that can be perverted. God has given humanity many wonderful things that we pervert, twist, bend, and break. God invented sex. 
But the world, our flesh, and the devil twisted into a vile caricature that promises freedom, but really brings slavery. Righteousness, too, is a wonderful gift, but the history of religious people has demonstrated time and again that righteous people often become self-righteous and prideful, and God resists the proud. Why does this happen? How is it that something wonderful like marriage or work ethic can be twisted into something sinful? James wants to help us answer that question by helping us understand how sin works so that we can avoid it and thus be blessed. This morning, James helps us grow as followers of Christ by helping us understand how desire combines with temptation, which then gives birth to sin and ultimately death. So let's read God's Word together. James chapter 1, verse 12 through 18. We're going to read it kind of in context, but we're going to focus primarily on verses 13 through 15. Let's read. Blessed be the, God, the, the, blessed be the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Verse 15. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Verse 18, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for today and the opportunity to gather in, in this house. I, say, I thank you so much for for this church, how it takes seriously what the Scripture says in Philippians 1.5, how it partners together for the work of the ministry. I thank you for that. I thank you for this time together in the Word. I pray that our time together would, would bear fruit in our hearts and minds, that we would understand sin better and temptation better, and through that also understand the good news of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Some people view anger as inherently evil, but I don't see it that way. Now, it's, of course, risky and dangerous, but God himself has been described in the Bible as being angry at times. There are times, in fact, when anger is a gift. Not sure, ladies? If a deranged man were chasing you down the street, you and your children, screaming murderous threats at you, and then your husband heard what was going on, emerged from behind the scenes, would you want him to be passively peaceful? Or violently angry? I rest my case. We can go home. Church is so, no. The Bible says that we should be, we can be angry and sin not. It doesn't ever say don't be angry. Angry is, a, it can be a blessing in the right 
context, such as when the Allied forces stormed the beach at Normandy, can I suggest to you that when soldiers do such things, anger at times fuels valiant men to be unbelievably brave. Anger is not inherently sinful, but just like anything else that is good, it can be and often is perverted. Anger has led men to abuse their wives and children. The gift that God gave them to help them protect their loved ones is often perverted and used as a tool to control and hurt. It leads to actions like road rage that are ridiculous caricatures of what God had in mind. Some have found anger to be like second nature, saying that it's, it's not our fault we get angry. It's because we're Irish or Italian or have red hair. Those are all examples that I've heard. It's, it's in my roots. It's not my fault. But anger is hardly the only area where we are tempted to sin. And some sins are tolerated quite well in our society. Angry outbursts are not. But certainly sexual sin is well tolerated in America. And it's become common to deny that anything that is done in the bedroom is sinful, so long as two consenting people are involved. After all, we are born this way with powerful desires, and we cannot, no, we should not, desire, de deny ourselves what we crave. That is the mindset. But that is not God's opinion on how we should express and enjoy our sex drives. He has spoken decisively on the matter. Sex is holy and beautiful within the bond of marriage between one man and one woman. Everything else is hideously sinful, and the wages of sin is death. When we sin and say that it comes natural to us because we are born with such desires, we are blaming God. But James will have none of it. Verse 13 he, do, he says, don't accuse God of tempting you. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Well, how does God feel about sin? God hates sin. He can't stand the way it smells, looks, feels, and he is repulsed at its effect that it has on people. He's a, repulsed at the effect it has on our world, our sin offends God. Our sin nauseates him like the stench of roadkill. Now, I originally thought about that years ago. Well, in, uh, in Missouri, we have armadillo, and that is the nastiest roadkill you could ever hope to come across. I remember being at a, showing up, and there was an accident, and it was summertime, and the stench of a nearby armadillo carcass was wafting, and finally the, my pastor just looks and goes, where is that smell coming from? It's a roadkill. Next time you encounter some nasty roadkill, remember that this is how God feels about sin. He can't stand the sight or smell of it. The same way that you don't want that carcass in your living room is the same way he feels about sin. And God is the judge of the universe. He has complete knowledge of the facts of the case. He doesn't need to create a special counsel to determine if a crime has been committed, nor does he have to raid your home under questionable circumstances. He knows that we have sinned against him and therefore have broken his moral law. God detests sin. The last thing he wants is for you to sin more. So don't blame God. He isn't tempting you. He hates sin, 
but loves sinners. He hates sin, but loves sinners. How do we know that God loves sinners? Well, John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved all the sinful people of the world that he sent his only begotten Son, so that whosoever believes in him might not perish because of their sin, but have everlasting, abundant life. Now, friends, that is good news. People are comfortable with the idea that we talk about Jesus coming to rescue us, but the idea that it was our sin in the first place that caused the rescue to be necessary, well, that's offensive. But my job as a preacher is just to tell you what the Bible says, not necessarily help you like it. I hope that you do, because there's good news in here. But you can't know that the gospel is good news unless you realize how bad our sin condition is. Or as one preacher said, you can't get someone found until they realize that they're lost because of their sin. God sent his son Jesus to save us. Us? Yes, us. Law-breaking sinners covered with stinky sin. Sinners who have offended a holy God. Jesus died to save us because he loves sinners despite our sin. If you have kids, that's not hard to imagine. You love your kids, but don't always love everything that they do. Jesus' death made our salvation possible. How? Well, by paying for our sin in the legal sense. Paying for our sin in the legal sense. He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace. Christ Jesus paid a debt that I could never pay. When we sin, we are indebted to the law of God. Just like a crook is expected to pay for her, her debt to society, so too a sinner must pay his debt to a holy God. But we are unable to do so. But Jesus paid it for us and washes away the guilt of sin. He doesn't just try to cover up the stench of our sin with some spiritual Lysol. Jesus washes and cleanses us, making us pure and holy before God, welcome in his presence. Washing our sins away, he washes our sins away in the religious sense. Sin defiles us, but faith in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection cleanses those who trust in him. Finally, Jesus' death on the cross reconciles our relationship to God. Why did Jesus have to do all of that? Well, God originally created us perfect without sin. Good things weren't perverted and twisted into something sinful at the, in the original creation. But every single one of us, beginning with Adam and Eve, have sinned, and the result is separation from God. Sin is when we choose to do things our way instead of God's. The end result of sin is brokenness, broken relationships, broken homes, broken governments, and broken systems. Our attempts to fix our brokenness almost always lead to more brokenness because we can't fix ourselves. And so he sent his only begotten son, Jesus. He lived a sinless life, and about the age of 33, he allowed himself to be arrested by Roman soldiers. He was put on trial, declared guilty, even though he was innocent. And then he was put to death through crucifixion. And while he was dying on the cross, God did a miracle. He put all of the sins of the world on Jesus. And as he was dying, his death was paying for our sins. As horrible as that event was, God overturned it when he raised Jesus from the dead on the third day. 
And now, when we turn from our sins to faith in Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven and we are reconciled to God. And God begins to help us through the power of the Holy Spirit that's placed in us to reclaim God's original design for our lives. It isn't an easy path and it's not straightforward all the times and it's often a bumpy ride. We still face temptations and trials, but over time, God heals our brokenness beginning by healing our broken relationship with Him. Now, James didn't believe that this that his half-brother Jesus was the Son of God. Why was James his half-brother? Well, Jesus was born to a virgin. James was not. Mary and Joseph were his parents through the natural course of biology. So James didn't believe that his half-brother Jesus was the Son of God. He thought Jesus was crazy until, that is, he saw the resurrected Jesus alive after he had been crucified, dead, and buried. Meeting the resurrected Jesus changed him. Changed him. Meeting the resurrected Jesus always results in a changed man, a changed woman, a changed family. The letter that James wrote talks about trials. God allows trials to come into our lives so that the brokenness and pain that we feel will lead us to come to Jesus for salvation. Will you come to him for salvation? I will give you an opportunity to do that this morning at the end of the service. Don't put God off any longer. Come to Him. God doesn't tempt us to sin. He hates sin. But He loves us so much that He offers to forgive our sin. So where does temptation come from? In verse 14, we see that our desires produce temptation. And verse 15 shows us that our desires produce sin and death. Let's take a look. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Verse 15. Then desire, when it is, has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Our desires produce temptation, and our desires produce sin and death. Desires create temptation, which lures us. Desire creates temptation, which lures us. Someone once asked Martin Luther whether it was wrong to be tempted or sinful to be tempted, he said, no, sin, uh, temptation is like birds that fly around the head. It's not wrong that they're there, but it's wrong for us to allow them to, to make a nest in our head and rest there for too long. Desire creates temptation, which lures us. And Satan is like a good fisherman. He knows which lures tempt us. One fish craves a spinnerbait, and another crave, fish craves a tube jig. And that changes the color depending on the, the seasons of the year and how much daylight there is and all of those things. So a fisherman chooses what lure to present to that fish in order to tempt it. Desire kicks in and that fish clamps down on that spinnerbait. It looks so good, so promising, so tasty. But as soon as he bites down on that lure, he realizes that he got more than he bargained for because that hook is set in. And now he is being dragged off. It is the same way when it comes to our desires and that cause us to act upon temptation. Satan knows which lure of temptation works best on us as individuals even. And he uses that knowledge against us. Having a desire and being tempted is not a sin. When, we desi when desire and temptation come together, however, 
it gives birth to sin. And when that newborn sin reaches full maturity, we have death. But that statement requires clarification. Because Adam and Eve sinned, sin has entered the world. And because of that, we are all born with a sin condition. While God's original design for humans was that we never die, our inherited sin condition ensures that everyone born inevitably dies. So we are sinners by birth and inevitably sinners by choice. When we knowingly sin for the first time, we die spiritually, which means separation from God. If that separation from God remains unchanged, our final state is eternal death, which is separation from God and all that is good for eternity in a real place called hell. I remember seeing a video where Johnny Cash asked Billy Graham about hell. And after, after Billy Graham answered for a while, Johnny Cash said, well, all my friends are going to be in hell. And Billy Graham said, there will be no friends in hell. Why? Because in hell there's no good things. Friends are good. Therefore, they will not be friends in hell. That's bad news. But the good news is that because of what Jesus did for us, we can receive eternal, abundant life. Praise Jesus for the gift of salvation. We are tempted by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And once we take the bait of sin, we are hooked, reeled in, and put into Satan's live well. Now, if you don't know what a live well is, I'll give you a, my best definition. In a boat, there's a little bucket put into the floor of the boat. And it's got a little door, doorway that's a hatch. When you catch a fish, which I'm not very good at, but when you catch the fish, you put it into the live well. There's water. A lot of times they've got air pumped into it to keep the fish alive for a while until that fisherman decides it's time to cook and clean and eat the fish. We are tempted by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And once we take the bait of sin, we are hooked, reeled in, and then put into Satan's live well. And we stay in the devil's live well so long as we live. And once we die, he takes us to his home in hell, a place where there is no hope. Some of y'all said preachers should preach more often on hell. Well, here you go. But while we are alive, we can still turn to Jesus, put our trust in him for the forgiveness of sins, and be set free. Sin always costs more than we bargain for. I think it was Adrian Rogers who said, sin will take you farther than you want to go, cost you more than you want to pay, and keep you longer than you want to stay. But people don't always really believe that. You know, I wonder if fish in a live well believe that they are in a live well. I suspect that so long as the hook is out of their mouth, and there's a sufficient amount of water and a little bit of room to, to move, they probably are fine with being in the live well because they are clueless about the danger they are actually in. In the same way, most people are clueless that they are in Satan's live well on the highway to hell. And an unbeliever who has gotten off of addiction's hook, for example, is too happy to notice that they are still in Satan's live well. I'm going to say that again. An unbeliever who has gotten off of addiction's hook is too happy to notice that they are still in li Satan's live well. They're just happy that the hook is out of their mouth. In fact, that wonderful gift of deliverance can become a pride-filled barrier to true deliverance. 
Because God doesn't just want to deliver us from our sins and get us off the hook. He also wants to remove our sin nature, delivering us from its internal control on our decision making. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. James warns Christians how sin works so that we can partner with the Holy Spirit who is working in us to eradicate our sin nature. Christian, you don't have to sin anymore. Preacher, you don't have to sin anymore. We don't have to take the bait. We have been set free in Christ. Satan doesn't do catch and release, but when you put your trust in Jesus, he puts his nail-scarred hand into Satan's live well, plucks us out, and sets us free. It is for glorious freedom that Christ saves us. And while our world celebrates sin, we must understand that it is not our friend. Sin will cost you more than you want to pay and keep you longer than you want to stay. I saw a quote from Billy Sunday, who I'm told preached maybe in our church a long time ago. He said, one of the reasons that Christians are so weak is that we no longer see sin for what it is. We don't view it as a viper, but as a marshmallow, a cream puff. Can I suggest to you that that is true? We need to understand sin. Sin is both a verb and a noun. A verb and a noun. We think of sin as a thing we do, and it is, but it's also a thing. Sin has tainted our desires. Sin is a thing in us that takes even good things like success and turns it into something bad. We were born this way. And the more we act on it, the more contorted we become. And sin's impact is never limited to just us. It always impacts those around us. Sin is never really a private matter, even if you think no one else knows about it. I preached this concept to teens many times over the years. And the thought occurred to me that a teenage boy and a teenage girl, when they might get together, might say, you know, if we have sex outside of marriage, we know God says it's wrong, or well, some know that. It really isn't hurting anybody, so it's okay. And I go, hey, newsflash, Jack and Diane. You're probably not marrying that person that you're... So that's somebody else's husband. That's someone else's wife. They're going to marry somebody else and they're going to have children. Guess what? Your private sin isn't just your private sin. It's true of teenagers. It's true when you're in college. And it's certainly true when we're adults. Sin is never a private matter. You defile yourself and someone else. Sin is like an instinct in us. Our sin condition our condition is almost like an instinct. But unlike the beasts of the field and the fish of the seas, we are able to choose not to sin, but we don't. Christian, we don't have to take the bait. Jesus has set us free from nearly instinctual tendencies to sin. And I didn't lie to you and say it would be easy. 
but you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, leading you to be holy. That's something that was not there in you before you came to Christ. In my life, I've known Christians who've kind of gone, gone so far with their growth in Christ. They still wrestle, like all of us, with temptations, but they sort of just given up on it. So when they're tempted to sin, at least in the beginning, they, they know that what they're doing is wrong, but they just go with it. They go with what they know. And God's wanting you to know something new called holiness and righteousness experienced in the present tense. Now, some of you are theological nerds like me, so you're challenging that. It is true that we are declared saints and children of God at the moment of conversion. God wants us to experience holiness now. Are we going to be perfectly holy? I don't believe so. I've not seen it, in the, I've not seen it work out anywhere in 2,000 years of church history, and I don't know for sure that the Bible seems to teach that. It tells us how to handle sin after we get saved. Probably because God knew we would sin after we got saved. Nevertheless, if you have ever tasted victory over sin, over something that's gotten its hooked in you and controlled you, there's nothing like it. God enabled you to do what you could not do in your own strength. My old pastor used to say, the situ God, God uses the situations of life to bring out of you what's in you. If you have been lured into sin by temptation, it might mean that you're still holding on to a love of sin in some way. The good news is that there is still forgiveness for the child of God. If you are a child of God, know this. God child of God, Satan can't ever put you back into his live well. Let me say that again. For the child of God, Satan can't ever put you back into his live well, but he can lure you to damage your testimony and weaken yourself with sin, and I would say rob you of the joy of your salvation in so many ways. Even when we resist temptation, the fact that we are tempted should remind us of the enemy within called our flesh. But when you resist temptation to sin successfully, be blessed, but know that it was because God was at work in you both to will and to do according to His good pleasure. So Christian, don't take the bait. Listen to what Paul says about it in Romans chapter 6, verse 12-14. through 14. He says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from life, from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Let not sin there before reign in your mortal bodies to make you present yourself to it. The idea of present yourself, you know, years ago, and I've shared this story with you. I used to work at a warehouse for a company called B&B Appliance. And when there was a, some, when they sold a flat, well, actually it was gold glass tube TVs. You know, warehouse to the front for a pink. When you get these old pink carbon copy things and you'd, this Sony 36-inch TV, and you'd get that massive glass tube TV and you'd take it to the front. Well, after I stopped working there, 
I went to visit some old friends, and they came over the PA warehouse to the front for a pink. And I immediately started to go forward to present myself to serve at B&B Appliance. But then I remembered, they ain't my boss anymore. Christian, Satan's not your boss anymore. Sin doesn't call the shots unless you let it. Don't let sin reign in your life. Choose not to give in to temptation. Decide today that Jesus, not sin, is Lord. Present yourself to God. Choose to live with Him and serve Him. We have spent too much time obeying our passions and lusts. And it is time that we choose to serve and enjoy Jesus rather than serving our lusts. Or perhaps you're a Christian, but have taken the bait once again. What do you do now? Understand that because of Christ, you are under grace, not wrath. While you and I may sin and even bear the consequences for it, we are no longer sons of anarchy waiting for a day of reckoning at the hands of a holy God whose wrath is far more terrifying than Satan's. We have been redeemed. We are beloved children of God. Be encouraged by God's grace, but also repent, which doesn't simply mean feel bad about it. It means ask God for forgiveness and to help you turn away from sin. Determine to enjoy freedom in Christ rather than take the bait of sin once again. Finally, as Chad comes to play our song of invitation, perhaps you've never put your trust in Jesus for salvation. Understand that you, like all the rest of us here, have been lured by temptation and sin, have sinned. You have taken the bait, and you are in Satan's live well waiting for judgment day. But this morning, if you call on Jesus for salvation, he will save you. He calls you to come to Him for salvation. Jesus died to pay the price for your sins and rose again. And now today, when we turn from sin and turn to Jesus in saving faith, He rescues us from Satan's live well. If you would like to be set free in Jesus, if you would like to be saved, I invite you make your way to the front. I want to help you call on Jesus. He will hear you and He will save you. Please stand for our song of invitation. You've been listening to Dr. Dan Kitanoia, pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Tilton, Illinois. If you'd like to learn more, visit our website at myhomecalvary.org. That's myhomecalvary.org. Thank you for listening.